The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Popes Against the Modern Errors on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Lordship, Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. My Lord, I'd like to start this episode off by looking at the context in which this encyclical was written. It was written in 1891. A quick Google search has brought up for me uh, the following incident, some some of the following incidents that happened that year. On January 31st, there was an attempt by Portuguese Republicans to have a revolution in that country, in the northern city of Porto. London and Paris were connected by telephone that year. There was an attempt made on the later Tsar Nicholas II in Japan. An assassination attempt was made. There was a union organized and strikes in Texas uh, for cotton pickers. The first gasoline-powered car, or petrol-powered car, as we would say in this country, debuted in Springfield, Massachusetts. And Thomas Edison patented the radio. So there was a lot going on uh, in the world, generally. Um, There was a lot of scientific advances being made. Uh, but a lot of a lot of unrest, a lot of social unrest as well. That that was the the context under which this encyclical was written. Could you add anything more to that? Yes, uh, it's really the first time that the church had to address something like this in its whole history, uh, because uh, of the industrial revolution, essentially, uh, up to about eighteen hundred, more or less. Life was the same as it was in 1800 BC. Uh, the, the essentially, that is, uh, people tilled the soil. Uh, products were made in workshops, in small workshops by hand, and uh, people sold them in relatively small towns. Um, and uh, but most of the people were on the land and and were tilling the soil, and that was the economy of most developed nations and even undeveloped nations. So that had not changed, just as uh, Napoleon uh, went around Europe with the same speed and with the same kind of propulsion as Julius Caesar did, that is, with horses and wagons. And Life did not really change for centuries and centuries. It was all the same. And then 
with the scientific developments of the late 18th century, and particularly in England and Scotland, too, uh, there, there grew up, uh, and particularly in England, uh, factories and uh, uh, places where, where things were produced by machines. And this spread to all over Europe. It spread to the United States as well. Uh, so that by even the early 19th century, people were abandoning their land and moving into cities to work for these big factories. Uh, and this just changed the whole uh, way in which people lived and did business. And and it created a, a, a very significant uh, class difference. The one was that of the super rich entrepreneur uh, who owned the factory, uh, let's say in Manchester, England, which was a center for um, uh, fabrics and, and cloth. Uh, enormously rich, uh, just incredibly rich. And then tenements of people uh, living in squalor that had come in from the farms in Manchester, many had come in from Ireland to work in these factories under deplorable conditions. And this was, again, multiplying itself all over Europe and all over the United States. So the northeastern part of the United States had the same problem. Uh, so that was unheard of in the history of the world. And it was the result of the Industrial Revolution. And as I said, it was felt most keenly in England. So because the conditions of the workers were so squalid and because the entrepreneurs were so selfish, there was a developing a class warfare. And the answer to this class problem was, in, in most of Europe, socialism. So, for example, the Communist Manifesto was published by Marx and Engels in 1848. By the way, both of them lived in Manchester. Yes, they did. That was uh, considered <laughs> the the home of the Industrial Revolution. And, uh, well, England is nothing if not liberal. <laughs> so yes. they'll, they'll let anybody stay here. It doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> So they they were very active in in that city and uh, but you know it's very very much an example of the whole world and Manchester is very much uh, because it attracted so many people including people from our own uh, and a lot of Catholics too uh, and uh, so uh, so that was 1848 and that was the beginning of a, a consciousness of what to do about this and so the church felt the need to on the one hand, uh, say something about the moral theology of worker versus entrepreneur, and at the same time to condemn socialism, which was a very, very evil doctrine. And that is why Leo XIII is saying this, because socialism is, is heavily on the rise by the latter part of the 19th century. Every single European country is dealing with the problems of socialism and class warfare. Uh, Germany, uh, England, France, uh, uh, the, the whole of Europe, and the United States, too. Labor unions in the United States, strikes, 
uh, especially the northeastern industrial area of the United States, uh, is, is feeling it. The United States, however, remained very much an agrarian country uh, until World War II, really. Uh, it was a farm country, and it is to a great extent today, but the farms are in, in the hands of tremendous entrepreneurs who own yeah. enormous pieces of land and, and run it like a, like a big business. But you know, that, that's aside. But uh, up to about World War II, the United States it was a, a, a very agrarian society. As a matter of fact, the bishops chose St. Isidore the Farmer as one of the patrons of the United States because there were so many farmers in the United States. So, so we were <laughs> lagging a little bit in this whole thing. You know. But it caused a tremendous social change in England, too. You know. So that was on the rise, uh, socialism. And the Church wanted to put a stop to socialism, but also lecture everybody on what the relationship should be between worker and entrepreneur. Uh, so that, that's the context of this. So it's a very strong condemnation of socialism, uh, this, this encyclical. But at the same time, it's not siding with uh, laissez-faire liberal capitalism, where the, the worker is considered just a, a dog, essentially, that, that is there to work for the lowest possible price that, that he can fetch. Uh, it, it is condemning all of that at the same time. Uh, so that's that's the context. Uh, now socialism will just explode after World War One, everywhere. It will uh, explode in England. It had been exploding in England up to that time. Uh, if you the decade or so before it, it was becoming very very prevalent in England. But uh, all Europe. Uh, the reason why, for example, the Germans ceased to fight was primarily because the socialists uh, ate out we might say, or, or corrupted the spirit of the army so that they wouldn't fight. Uh, the, the Germans, I, I believe, if they had continued to fight, probably would have prevailed. But there was a revolt, a socialist revolt against the Kaiser, and he had no more army to send in. That, that was, why, right. was one of the principal reasons why they sought the armistice. And, of course, the Bolshevists in Russia, it was a disease that just went everywhere, and we ha we're still laboring under the socialist problem. Uh, here, 100 years after the, or 98 years after the Russian Revolution, we are all socialists. I mean, all of our governments are socialist to a greater or lesser extent, probably less so in the United States. But nonetheless, there's plenty of socialism over here. Our president is a declared socialist. And, uh, of course, we know Europe is very much in the grips of socialism as well. So uh, it, it is something that essentially took over the Western world. So that's why this encyclical is here. And that's why it's very topical today, because it addresses the very economic system and governmental system that we're all living in and under today. Yes, yes. Well, uh, she certainly wasn't a Catholic, but as the late Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of everybody else's money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Another one was the definition of socialism is that you're generous with other people's money. <laughs> <laughs> the first paragraph is all about the spirit of revolutionary change at that time. And if we look at the world today, whether you read the mainstream media or the alternative media or whatever newspaper really you pick up or wherever you get your news from, you can't ignore the fact that in the past 
decade, a financial crisis, there's a widespread acknowledgement of a, a widening uh, gap between rich and poor, there's deindustrialization in Western countries, there seems to be, and this is my opinion, it's not necessarily the opinion of the Restoration Radio Network, but it's my opinion that we have a, a rapacious banking system, we have um, states run by self-serving politicians and the judiciary, and this is undeniable, uh, particularly in light of what happened in the United States recently, a judiciary that is intent on legalizing immorality. And Leo Thirteenth addresses all of these issues in the encyclical. It's really a, a, a tour de force of philosophy and theology and a, a, applied to the lot of man. Uh, could you speak a bit more about Leo Thirteenth? Uh, was he a, a Thomist? He, he, he quotes in Thomas a lot. Yes, he was an excellent Thomist, a very intelligent man. He was practically single-handedly responsible for the uh, making Thomism the common philosophy of the Church. Uh, Thomism had been very, very popular, we might say, uh, up to about 1400. Then it, it fell into, uh, well, we'll call it a, an unpopularity, except with the Dominicans. The Dominicans held on to Thomism, and uh, but it was uh, essentially the property of the Dominicans, and the Jesuits had their Suarez, and Suarez became very popular because he was a Jesuit, and there were a gazillion Jesuits, <laughs> and they were in charge of the schools, and and uh, the you know they, they had a lot of money, and and so they they became the big order. And so Suarez uh, outshined St. Thomas for a long time, although the Dominicans always, you know, were very faithful to St. Thomas. And then, uh, you know, in the 18th century, the Catholic schools, even uh, even seminaries started to teach Descartes and all sorts of other uh, odd philosophies and very dangerous philosophies and false philosophies and, and tried to explain dogmas with Descartes' philosophy, which is impossible. But uh, that, that's... Uh, so theology was in bad condition by the end of the 18th century. Uh, it did not improve significantly during the 19th century. There, there were some you know, decent theologians, and uh, but it, it was in comparison to the Middle Ages, it was in bad condition. And believe it or not, the the push to make Thomism the philosophy of the Catholic Church came from the Jesuits. <laughs> it came from two Jesuits. Yes, it came from the Jesuits. It came from Liberatore and Tongiorgi, two Jesuits in Italy uh, who who pushed for the establishment of Thomism as the Catholic philosophy. And they were active when Leo XIII was a priest and a bishop, mid-19th century. So he uh, very much... Uh, was in favor of that. And one of the first things he did, one of his first encyclicals, was to establish Thomism as the Church's philosophy and to re-edit the works of St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, he gave a tremendous impetus to the revival of Thomism. And then you saw great people like uh, Gary Lagrange, Cardinal Billot, um, many, many other great theologians uh, who were Thomists and who re represented Thomism to the whole world in books that were a little easier to understand than St. Thomas himself. 
and more condensed, uh, and also commented on a lot of the things that St. Thomas said uh, in relation to the modern problems and, and things that St. Thomas had never thought of. So uh, there was an, an upsurge in the Church's theology from the time of 1878 until the Council. Uh, I mean, it was going great guns, and it would have continued if the Council had not uh, put an arrow in its heart uh, with modern philosophy and Kantianism and all sorts of other nonsense and garbage. Uh, that was Leo XIII's great contribution, and uh, yes, he does quote St. Thomas, uh, and this is a... Is, uh, this encyclical is, is a course in uh, Catholic philosophy of economics and uh, you know, concerning private property. I mean, when I read it, it, it it's, a, it's like reading a textbook. I mean, he was certainly familiar with these things and wanted to present them in an organized way. Yes. We're not going to talk about the Chestertonian idea of, uh, and Belloc's idea of distributism, uh, we're not going to talk about money creation or anything like that. For people who want to research those sort of subjects, you can go away and look at that. We're we're going to look um, at the encyclical. So we've gone through the idea that this was uh, this was a, this was a time of revolutionary change, and he has to in the encyclical define some rights. He has to define the rights of employers and the rights of labourers, and he says that this is not an easy thing to do because. And to quote him, he says, crafty agitators are intent on making use of these differences, the differences between laborers and employers, to pervert men's judgments and to stir up the people to revolt. Now, in that, is he directly addressing the problem of socialism in Europe at the time? Absolutely. He's, uh, that is a, a blow against the Marxists, who see as the um, remedy for the evils of, let's say, less-say-fair capitalism, or what we might call liberal capitalism, that is, do whatever you want. It's a free field. Uh, pay your workers the least possible, just as if they were slaves. Fire them at will uh, and and have no care about their, their personal welfare. Uh, and, and just let the, the free market reign and uh, it'll seek its own course, and whatever course it seeks is the right one. That is laissez-faire or liberal capitalism, and that naturally caused real problems. You know, it, it's the socialists were not wrong in noticing the problems. <laughs> they were very, very real problems, and and there were children working in factories. The, the, the conditions of the factories were very bad in New York City. There were many young women who died in a, a factory, I think, in the 1880s or so, uh, because there were no exits. Uh, there were A fire occurred, and nobody could get out. They were all burned to death. They were jumping out of the windows. Uh, and uh, it, because the employer had didn't really care. Uh, just just use them. They're, they're like animals, and they come in. They're like slaves, practically. As a matter of fact, at the time of the, the U.S. Civil War, around 1859, there was a Southern writer who said, to addressing the Northerners, you have your slaves up there. They work in your factories. You, know, you pay them so little that the, their condition is really yes. no different from, from the condition of our slaves. 
And yeah. he was absolutely right. And so, I mean, the socialists were not wrong to notice the problem, but their, their solution was all wrong, and that was that there should be a state control of the means of production and, and that the worker should rise up against the employer and should see him as an enemy, see him as, as somebody that does not deserve to have what he has and, and cause a, a class struggle. So, so Europe was beset by that. I mean, it was, uh, there were strikes all over England, particularly. A lot of agitation in, with regard to that that was fomented by socialists. And it, and it caused a, a tremendous problem. I mean, look at the, the Soviet Union. Uh, for 70 years, uh, it, uh, those people labored under a socialist regime. Look at even communist China today. I mean, uh, there, once that gets a hold of a society where the state becomes the all-powerful, essentially, employer, which is socialism in its most extreme form, which is communism, where the, the, the state is the employer. You get your check from the state, whether it is whether you're making shoes or whether you're making you know, rockets for outer space, your, your paycheck comes from the state. That, that, is, uh, that is communism. Socialism is a more moderate form of that, but it all it requires, uh, socialism requires the state to get involved in, in the lives of the individual's and to limit their, either limit or deny, in the case of communism, deny, but in socialism, limit the rights of private property. Uh, so that was the problem. That, uh, the, the problem was there. The solution of the socialists was wrong. And so Leo XIII is saying, essentially, in this encyclical, the, the, the problems are real, but your solution is wrong, and this is the solution. The Catholic solution is the right one. Uh, so that's uh, that's what he's trying to explain here. In the third paragraph, he talks about the fact that the the guilds are gone. Of course, you know there's appalling monopolistic guilds that allow people to make um, you know unreasonable profits. Uh, that was that was an awful system, wasn't it, in, in medieval Europe? The, 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 I mean, the, the, the very, um, you know, we'll just address that very quickly and skip over it. The very idea that that is true is ridiculous because all of these communities were small communities. If all the, if the blacksmiths were all living in mansions and the tanners were living in, uh, and the bakers were living in hovels, then clearly there would be some kind of, some kind of agreement made that the blacksmiths were charging too much. But of course, that was all stripped away. Uh, that was all stripped away and done away with the. Accused of being monopolistic, and Leo the Thirteenth points out that actually the greed of unchecked competition is what's left. And yes, certainly in, in Northern England, which it, which was really the heartland of the Industrial Revolution in England, those northern towns like Manchester, Blackburn, Bolton, Lancaster, Halifax, Leeds, Sheffield, York, Doncaster—they were the real engines of growth. And there there were mills up in. In Yorkshire, Lancashire, where where the mill owners would provide decent accommodation and and were generally beneficent to their to, to their employees, and they would provide them with decent sanitation, decent housing, but they were few and far between. Most most of the people crowded in from from the land. You know, they crowded in from agricultural occupations, and and you know, you're absolutely right. They they lived in in hovels. 
But then Leo Thirteenth goes on. He talks about the socialist solution, which is essentially to exploit the poor's envy of the rich. But essentially socialism, the three things he says about it is it robs, it robs the lawful possessor of his possessions. It distorts the functions of the state and it creates utter confusion in the community. And he then goes on to say that the aim of labor is to obtain property. Now, all of our listeners should know that the, the holding of private property is, is perfectly Catholic. Um, why, is, why, why is the holding of, of private property perfectly in accordance with, with Catholic doctrine? Well, because it, in order to function, we have to have uh, use and permanent use of certain things. We have to have permanent use of shelter, permanent use of clothing, uh, transportation, permanent use of legitimate luxuries, uh, you know, if we get beyond the survival stage, um, that this pertains to man's good and that he cannot live a normal life if he does not have permanent use of those things. And that permanent use is his private property. Also, by the very nature of what he does to obtain those things, uh, he has private property because, as Leo XIII says in this encyclical, he implants upon, whether it is the soil or it could be some other work, his own uh, what what he what he makes or or what he does his he implants his own personality uh, if you till the soil for example on that field you are placing some of yourself and those those plants are there and the fruits of those plants are there because of what you have done they have proceeded in that way from you and had you not uh tilled that soil they would not be there it would be a field of weeds so therefore because these fruits come out of you, uh, they should belong to you because they're, they're part of you. Uh, it's almost as if they're your own children in a way. Uh, so uh, the, the, he makes that point very, very carefully. Uh, but uh, uh, the, uh, the, by the very nature uh, of what you do, you have a right to private property. And also it is impossible for human beings to lead their lives uh, well, uh, and even, uh, I mean, it's impossible, it would be, human life would be impossible unless there were private property. Uh, an example of that is uh, uh, if, if in the apartment house, or excuse me, the, I don't know what you call that in England, the, the flat house, what, what, what do you call it? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, you could call it an apartment. We, we, yeah, okay. we would know what you mean, but you would probably say a flat. <laughs> if at the end of the hallway there were a common vacuum cleaner, just so that no one could own his own vacuum cleaner, but there was a common vacuum cleaner at the end of the hallway, I, I would give that about one month before it became unusable because of the way people would treat it. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, you, I mean, in a socialist society, you would not be able to to uh, vacuum your rug because uh, the, it, would, it would fall into the terrible disorder or it would be stolen. Uh, it, 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 that just, I mean, that's one example of why human beings all need to have and, and own their own vacuum cleaners. 
uh, <laughs> life would become impossible uh, if, if we did not have permanent use and exclusive use of certain things that pertain to our perfection in life. And a vacuum cleaner is one of those things. <laughs> uh, or, or a car or, or, or anything else so that, that is necessary for life. I mean, we have to be able to, to have permanent use of those things. And that's essentially what private property is. Uh, so, Elisa uh, the Thirteenth goes on for quite a few paragraphs explaining essentially that, uh, and uh, and condemns socialism for its denial of private property, because that is at the heart of socialism. Uh, it has many definitions. Socialism. It has many descriptions. Many people wrote many books on socialism, and very good books. But at the heart of socialism is the question of private property. Uh, the extreme form of socialism is communism. It denies private property entirely. The moderated forms of socialism admit private property to a certain extent, but involve the state in in how you use it and what you can do with it. So there are laws concerning inheritance and uh, laws concerning um, uh, taxes and uh, various other other. I mean, I don't have to tell you, uh, living in a in a very socialistic country like England, <laughs> how much of the state uh, has has gotten into your life. Going back to those guilds, just as the the uh, people may not understand the guilds, and it's actually an important point because the guilds were these associations, uh, and they were religious associations. Uh, which, on the one hand, protected the uh, life of the worker, and in this case, the craftsman in the town, and on the other hand, made sure that he behaved himself. So it was based on this principle that all economic life must be governed. See, the, the problem of the 19th century is that liberalism got into the idea of economics. It infected economics just as it infected politics and infected religion and infected everything. That is, we should have no constraints upon ourselves except those that may harm someone else. So the idea was that economics should be free. You should be able to do whatever you please. Uh, the, the law of economics is simply to get ahead. So, for example, in this country... Uh, the, what in the United States, what is typical is that what we call a big box comes in. I don't know if you know. That. It's one of yeah, these I tremendous, <laughs> uh, like Walmart, or I don't know if you have those in England, but the yeah, we uh, have just under a different name, but yeah, <laughs> they they uh, they have tremendous entrepreneurs behind them. They come in and undersell everybody. They undersell, for example, you know anybody that's selling anything in his little shop. And so all of the little shops dry up, and then the the big box takes over. So, uh, and then they raise the prices typically after they have driven everyone out of out of competition. And and uh, uh, that that's very typical. The guilds prevented that. If you were the shoemaker in the little town, you were the only shoemaker, unless there was necessary. It was necessary to have two shoemakers. But it would govern the life of the town, the economic life of the town, in a very benevolent way. And it protected everybody. Uh, and, and, and that's a point that must be made, is that economics, just like anything else that human beings do, must be governed. Uh, you can't just let something, you can't let anything run amok. 
you can't let anything run wild and and find its own way. It's it's going to crash if you do that. Uh, and that's exactly what happened in the 19th century. And so the socialists are looking for government of economics, but they are looking for it in the wrong way. Uh, and the, so I just wanted to go back to the guilds. That's why Leo XIII laments the passing of the guilds, which which were dissolved by the French Revolution. Uh, and laments that, and um, and uh, really is is giving all of the. Um, Rationale of the guilds in this in this encyclical, uh, the, um, uh, the the French Revolution was very much a revolution of the bourgeoisie, the middle class that did not want the constraints of the old medieval aristocracy versus serf mentality, and it is true that something had to be done to adjust society to the existence of the bourgeoisie the middle class, the entrepreneurial class. It is true. I mean, it, 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 even France was living in a, in a world that was not real because they were considered to be part of the, the peasant world that tilled the soil. And, but they, they, they're, instead of you know, coming up with an equitable solution to that problem, they revolted. And they were the winners in the French Revolution. Uh, and they wanted that economic liberalism that uh, made the entrepreneur practically a king in the economic order. I well, just wanted to cover that. That's certainly a very good, uh, very good thing to cover, particularly with the with regards to the bourgeoisie wanting to liberalise economics. I studied actually uh, neoliberal economics at university. I spent three years scratching my head, thinking there's something not right about all these things and being taught, but I can't figure out what it is because. I'm not particularly bright. It took me quite a long time to cotton on. Um, but when I left university and started doing a bit more reading, I realized w- what the problems were. And it benefits the bourgeoisie enormously to liberalize economics because the largest proportion of the population are economically illiterate. They, they can't tell you how many is created. They can't tell you what the relationship is between a bond's interest rate and the price paid for it. They're, that they don't know, they don't, they don't understand why or how this system works. A lot of it is deliberately obfuscated to make it look a lot more complicated than it really is. Mm-hmm. But that is, that's certainly the case. And so it makes perfect sense why the French bourgeoisie would want to, yes, in, in, line, in line with liberalizing politics and morality, would also want to go and liberalize economics as well, because they could become fabulously wealthy from it. The Pope goes on to say that the it's the rationality we've already really discussed this, but it's the rationality of man that demands private property. It's a rationality that separates man from from the animals. And he then goes on to say that, as you have already said, you know we've we've covered this as well, but all human subsistence derives from the land. Again, as you pointed out, man works the land. We can go back to Genesis. I mean, in Genesis, it's you know, Genesis states after the fall, "Cursed is the earth in thy work; with labour and toil shalt thou eat thereof all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the earth. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread." So this socialists assume that you give you know you, you give a, give a load of land to somebody, and suddenly they become fabulously wealthy and have to do absolutely nothing for it. Well, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. No, it, it uh, the socialists would be for state ownership of all the land, uh, essentially the collective farm. 
and it would hire workers to work the land, and the state would collect all of those fruits of the land, and then you would get some some of it back and and uh, some sort of money for it. Uh, that, that's the, the socialist solution to that, uh, and uh, the um, but that's not the Catholic solution. You, you each man ideally should have his uh, work his own land and um, uh, uh, and benefit from the fruits of his own land. Uh, that that's uh, and and the same would be true. You know, if he's if he's working in his own shop, or if he's working in a factory, he'll say later in this encyclical that. It would be good for the, the let's say, the factory workers or entrepreneurs to let their their employees profit uh, or, or participate in the profits of what they make. See that, that they should not only receive uh, a wage, but also uh, that they, if the company does well, they they get a, a check for for participation in the profits. It's the same principle that they have put their personality upon what they make. And therefore, they they should uh, receive something back for it. That they're not merely slaves uh, living on subsistence, but that you know they they should participate in the fruits of the earth and in the fruits of the factory. Uh, that that's the ideal Catholic uh, position. Uh, that they should have uh, some benefit from what they produce. Yes. He then goes on to point out that private ownership, uh, we've, we've already established that private ownership is perfectly in accordance with, with the natural law and is, at least at the moment, backed up by civil law. But he, he, he points, the Pope points out that this is all capped by divine law. It's particularly in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Um, so if, if, if private ownership wasn't a part of Catholic doctrine, that, you know, it, would, it, would, it would be a nonsense. You would have to eliminate the tenth commandment. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. um, he then starts going down a route of talking about the family, and he's talking about the fact that uh, man may marry, and as marriage and the right to marry and the family precede the state, the rights and duties of the family are quite independent of the state within within certain limits. C- can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, the the fundamental society is the family, and it depends on natural law. That is, it is it, it comes from matrimony, which is all natural law. Uh, children are 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 naturally belong to their parents, so the family is something established by God. The state is an outgrowth of the family, uh, and and therefore the the rights of the family are prior to the rights of the state. And here he, he's uh, saying that whatever pertains to private property with regard to the individual pertains more to the family, that it is impossible to raise a family correctly unless there is the, the guarantee of private property. Uh, and uh, so uh, now that he does make a case for the, you know, the state intervening uh, in uh, uh, you know, if a, a drunken father is beating up his wife and his children, uh, he doesn't give that example, but I think that's what he means. The state has to intervene there and and take the the father out of the family and and or the children away from him and somehow solve that problem. So the occasionally and in extreme cases, the state has to intervene. 
but the the state should not be, uh, as he says in this encyclical, uh, you know, reaching into the family and replacing the father and, and replacing the parents, uh, as has happened terribly in modern society, uh, which is the effect of liberalism. Uh, see, liberalism sees in the liberal state everyone's equal, and the state consists of a. a a mass of equals, like a big bag of marbles. Everyone is equal, whether whether it is, you know, your profession is to be a prostitute or your profession is to be a, a, you know, a priest. Everyone's equal. We're all in it together. And so the state does not see anything between itself and the individual uh, and, and therefore reaches down into the children, reaches beyond the church, beyond the... The, the mother, the father, uh, all of the God-given society, and goes right to the children and dictates where they should go to school, w- what they should learn in school, uh, whether they should have vaccination, uh, various other things that really are the domain of the parents. Uh, and he is uh, complaining about that in the socialistic state in this encyclical, that the rights of the father and the family have to be observed. And Leo Fertin replies to this idea straight back with the idea that, and I quote, the domestic household is antecedent as well in idea as in fact to the gathering of men into a community. The family must necessarily have rights and duties which are prior to those of the community. So he he destroys that argument. It seems that whether it's in mildly socialist governments uh, verging all around to the really heavy communist. It seems that the state wants to intrude into every aspect of people's lives. Yes, yes. It, it, it sees nothing between itself and the individual. That's the effect of liberalism. It's the effect of the French Revolution. We're all equal. We're, we're all citizens. You know, so everyone was called citizen this and citizen that. Uh, comrade in in Soviet Russia, <laughs> yeah. uh, comrade Stalin, you know, who was a little bit more equal than everybody else, and uh, you know that that's very typical of socialism, uh, and that's that is why there, there's so much uh, invasion of the family by socialism. And just let me read this great quotation from the encyclical. He says, "Paternal authority can be neither abolished nor absorbed by the state." for it has the same source as human life itself. Quote, the child belongs to the father, unquote, and is, as it were, the continuation of the father's personality. And speaking strictly, the child takes its place in civil society, not of its own right, but in its quality as member of the family in which it is born. See, very important. See, as member of the family in which it is born. And for the very reason that Quote, the child belongs to the father, unquote. It is, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, quote, before it attains the use of free will under the power and the charge of its parents, unquote. The socialist, therefore, Leo continues, in setting aside the parent and setting up a state supervision, act against natural justice and destroy the structure of the home. That's a great quotation. It says everything. And by the way, you know, this is a footnote to what we're talking about, but part of the rise of socialism was also the rise of women's right to vote. 
that was again England was the place for that. <laughs> and yeah. uh, in the early nineteenth, uh, uh, early twentieth century, and you know there were yes. a lot of demonstrations for that. Uh, the reason <laughs> for that, for why women were not permitted to vote in any society, even though they were not permitted to vote, even in ancient Greece, in Athens, uh, is because the father voted for the whole family. It respected the family unit, uh, just as as the child, as he says, the child uh, child takes its place in civil society, not of its own right, but in its quality as member of the family in which it is born. So the the father is the the head of this uh, this one body of the family, so to speak. He casts the vote because the family is the unit of society and not the individual. And you know that that is somewhat analogically respected by, believe it or not, the the electoral system in this country. Uh, if you in the United States, the president is elected by a board of electors, uh, and uh, they are elected in each state. So that's why each state goes and throws all of its votes to one or the other. It, it is not by popular vote. It is it is by electoral vote, so the the whole state will go for one candidate or the other, which is I know in Europe the people just marvel at that and <laughs> want to gasp at it. They don't understand it, but it's because in this republic the unit that makes up the republic, at least in principle, is the state, and it is not the individual. The individual does not belong to Washington. The state does, or, or the, the state has a relationship to Washington, you know, to the capital. So, so the the the, the it is governed. Uh, the, the government, the federal government, is con- it concerns the states, not individuals. Uh, that that's analogical to the the society. You know, that the father casts the vote for the whole family. Uh, and that's why women did not have the right to vote, uh, because there was a great. Uh, traditionally, uh, a, a great respect for paternal authority, which of course broke up with liberalism and socialism. So it's not surprising that the suffragettes and all of those people were very allied to leftists uh, and, and socialist movements. It's funny you should say that. I just just remembered that in Ecuador, Garcia Moreno, the, the pre- former president of Ecuador, before he was assassinated. He enacted a law in which, when it came down to uh, referendums, only fathers of families could vote. If you were a single man, you you would not be allowed to vote because you were not the head of a family. And therefore, you didn't have to look at your children and look after your children and make decisions that were conducive to your children's future welfare. So it was only the heads. Of, it was only the heads of families who who could vote, and he was a Catholic president. He he, he obviously yeah. understood the principles behind it, and of course he was assassinated. Yes, Leo the Thirteenth, by the way, said, as he looks around the whole world, it is only little Ecuador which is a rightly governed society. Yeah, well, he made that statement, uh, but that came to an end. So, uh, uh, but. Uh, yeah, that, that's the reason for for uh, the, the movement, the suffragette movement, was, was very much tied to socialism. Yes. 
everyone's equal. So now the you know the father it can be the Democrat, the mother the Republican, and vice versa. The children can all vote for whomever they please, because it is just as I said a big bag of marbles, and there is no uh, uh, you know everybody's equal and it doesn't matter. So, uh, but you know in this country too, again you know, everybody touts democracy in this country. The uh, you had to be a landowner in order to vote in this country in the 18th century. So oh, really? you, a lot of people were, yes, you had to have a certain amount of land. I forget how many acres you had to have in order to qualify to vote. So this was mm. not what you call a democratic country in its, in its uh, origin. It was, uh, you had, in other words, you had to be somebody. You had to be somebody who was responsible and work for a living and, and at that time, there were no factories to speak of. So if you didn't own land, you, you were not considered to be in that class of people. But I thought yeah. the United States is a classless society. <laughs> well, that's plenty of class. Well, it's not a class. It's a class, very much aristocratic society, but of money. Yes. <laughs> there was what... what it has nothing to do with idols, but there's plenty of aristocracy of money. And, uh, you know, people like Donald Trump and all, I mean, that's like the, the Duke of, of whatever. Uh, I mean, he, he has all of the prestige of what, you know, a British aristocrat of the 18th century <laughs> uh, because he's got money. And uh, he could have got, or, or Gates, Bill Gates, the same thing. I mean, they live like aristocrats, they have power like aristocrats in their own way. So there is definitely a. Society can never be without class. It is impossible to not have, to to do away with class in, the, in a society. But yes, that was the idea uh, in the 18th century uh, framers of the Constitution that there would be no um, titles. <clears throat> That's why in this country I'm Your Excellency, whereas in your country I'm Your Lordship. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty good when I go over there. I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we 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 need to make progress with Sir Anthony though. That's a problem. Uh, <laughs> okay, I've got. I, in fact, I have to interview him uh, soon, so I'll, I'll bring it up and see what he says. <laughs> oh, he, he'll he'll say just yes, just go right ahead. I'm sure he'll. he'll like that. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure he will. But that idea that um, yeah, under socialism everything has to be equal, that moves along quite nicely to uh, to the next paragraph actually, um, in which. The Pope basically says that socialism brings everything low. When you try to equalize a society, you very rarely are able to pull everybody up. It's a lot easier to just push everybody down. There's a famous saying from the the old uh, Soviet Union. The workers used to say, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. And the (laughs) I... And the idea was essentially that actually they didn't own anything. So they didn't put any effort into working the soil, really working the land, making things of any of any reasonable quality. There was there was no real effort or excellence in anything and, and everything you you know, you saw coming out of coming out of the, the USSA, you know, their cars were terrible and I mean pretty much everything pretty much everything they had was, was awful. Um, yes. Because they had no incentive to work, they didn't want to do anything. So uh, socialism it impoverishes everybody rather than 
rather than having this sort of empl- you know employees paradise. Yes, I always say that. I go and visit Eastern Europe and the and Russia, and look at at the seventy years of what socialism did. And in Eastern Europe, it was only about forty years. What socialism did to people and re- how it reduced them. You you, you see, uh, for example, in Hungary, how how much uh, in the capital in Budapest, the wealth that there was in the late nineteenth century. Uh, beautiful buildings, architecture, uh, you can t- all of those things were put up in the late 19th century. Then you see <laughs> what happened. The, these horrid buildings that, that uh, you wouldn't put animals in, I mean, just, just cheap things uh, thrown together uh, that people would live in, and uh, you can see the, the imprint of socialism upon that country, and, and more so in Russia, the same thing in Russia. I saw it in Poland, too. So, uh, but... Uh, as as we know, many socialists are BMW socialists. Uh, yes. they, they live on on the, <laughs> the Upper East Side of of Manhattan Island, uh, and uh, they drive around in magnificent cars. And they're socialists because it clears their conscience. See, as they they drive around in their hundred thousand dollar car or whatever they have, uh, or better, uh, and uh, they're they're helping the poor. You see, because they're they're socialists. Uh, as they <laughs> they buy their twenty million dollar flats in the Upper East Side and, and so forth. Uh, the um, that that's you know there's so much uh, hypocrisy there, but not, it just amuses me that they're socialists. Everyone in New York City is a socialist. I don't know if you know that. The, the, that uh, yes, I mean it, it, you can cut it with a knife. Uh, you know, if you're not a socialist, it's practically a religion in New York City. Uh, and the richer you are, the more socialistic you are. Yes. Oh, and, and it, it's it's a supreme hypocrisy uh, because uh, <laughs> they would no longer the idea of giving away your money to the poor would be something absolutely horrifying to them. <laughs> they, they may not be able to make their payments on the BMW. So, uh, but that that's um, uh, yeah, that, that's. Social. It just amuses me that they have never seen, they have never gone and looked at socialism in the face uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, but uh, you know, there they are in Manhattan. But uh, he has, the uh, Leo has a, a, a another great quote that I'll read. He says, this is in paragraph 15, hence it is clear that the main tenet of socialism, community of goods, must be utterly rejected. Notice how he says that since it only injures those whom it would seem men meant to benefit, is directly contrary to the natural rights of mankind and would introduce confusion and disorder into the common weal. Beautiful quote. Absolutely to be rejected. Utterly rejected. Uh, so, so, and then he, in the next sentence he says, uh, an absolute condition of the bettering of the masses is the inviolability of private property. So the church is absolutely clear on this point and, and is absolutely anti-socialist. Uh, now, yes. this will change under John the Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth as everything else changed. Uh, Paul the Sixth was uh, certainly a socialist. Uh, we don't have time to talk about him, but uh, <laughs> all of that will change. <laughs> now, I wonder if anybody's told uh, Bergoglio, because Leo Thirteenth, in the second sentence of paragraph 16, makes it very clear. It is we who are the chief guardian of religion and the chief dispenser of what pertains to the church. 
he then goes on in the same paragraph to say that all the striving of men will be in vain if they leave out the church. Because mm-hmm. the ultimate end of society is virtue. Yes. Yeah, so this gets into Gaudium et Spes. Uh, I talked about this on another in another show, that the church all up to and I, and I say the church I mean this loosely because I don't I don't consider John the 23rd the church nor Paul the 6th but they have an aspect of being the church the church always insisted that you cannot perfect man without the redeemer that there's no you know utopian society of socialist solutions and or any other kind of human solution it's impossible to perfect the earth and bring it to peace without the Redeemer, and obviously without the Church. That was all changed with Vatican II. Pius IX condemned the modern world and the syllabus, and all of the you know, socialism, communism, and all of the tendencies of the modern world. Gaudium et Spes, which Ratzinger called the anti-syllabus, hooked up the Catholic Church to the idea of perfecting man without the Redeemer, so Paul VI, in 1965, goes to the UN and says, you're the last hope of mankind. And it goes on and on. I mean, you can listen to our show that I did with Stephen Heiner. But it goes oh, yeah. on and on and on about how the Church is with you now, and we're, you know, with you, we're going to perfect humanity and bring it to a state of peace and prosperity and everything else. Uh, so that, that's a very important point that Leo makes here, is that there's, there's no hope for this race without the Redeemer, and without the Church. So the next point, the paragraph 17, this is going to be a bit like lighting a firework. I'm going to stand back here and watch it go off. He talks about he talks about the equality of people. And the, me lighting the firework is simply asking you, my Lord, are people equal? Well, in a certain sense they are, and in a certain sense they're not. Everyone is equal in as much as he or she has the human nature. So if you're just isolating human nature, we are all equal as human beings. But obviously uh, there are other accidents that pertain to human nature, and that's where we are very unequal. Many people differ according to intelligence, according to skill, strength many, many other what we call accidents, uh, uh, qualities uh, that pertain to them. And some people are better than others. Some people are far more talented than than others uh, in all ways. This difference is very good for society because there, there has to be the entrepreneur who is courageous and who's intelligent, and there has to be the worker who uh, is perhaps less intelligent and less courageous. They both need each other because the worker would starve to death unless he were hired. The entrepreneur could not make his great factory or, or you know, develop his business unless there are workers who are willing to do menial jobs or medium jobs, let's say. You know, either way, I mean, menial or, or in the middle. There has to be a number one, there has to be a number two, three, four, and five, and six, etc., all businesses, all governments are set up that way. All machines are set up that way. There has to be a, a division of 
labor, and there has to be, uh, you know, there is a hierarchy of what you do. You know, a vice president of a, of a major corporation is far more valuable than somebody who sweeps the floor of the factory. You know, they, just like your brain is more valuable than your, your big toe. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, everything has a hierarchy of quality and, and also a hierarchy of function based on those qualities. That is true of all of creation, just as the 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 lion and the gazelle and the, the uh, you know the 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 hunter is is a usually a higher form of life than the hunted uh, and has more qualities than 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 what is hunted and God made it that way. Uh, there is a balance and an order in uh, in all of those things. It just as the yeah. the coal, the piece of coal is quite different from the diamond. Even though in nature they're absolutely the same, <laughs> o- offer your fiance a, a big lump of coal on, the <laughs> on sitting on a ring and see what happens. You say, well, <laughs> it's all the same. <laughs> so the same carbon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Moving on to um, paragraph eighteen, uh, Leo well, says, just, "Just let me." There's a great quote in seventeen. <laughs> Socialists may, in that intent, do their utmost, but all striving against nature is in vain. I, I love that, too. All striving against nature is in vain. And it's very topical to what the Supreme Court just uh, did in this country in you know, approving uh, homosexual marriages. All striving against nature is in vain, and, and that will be told with time in this country. There's a lot of excitement about it now, but that unnatural activity will never gain true acceptance among people. It will always be considered weird. So that said, Absolutely. let's go on to 18. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. Um, yes. the, the, the general inequality, he's discussed, he's discussed the general inequality, but he then points out, and you know, really, again, somebody should, uh, somebody should point this out to Mr. B at the moment. He says, quote, to suffer and to endure, therefore, is the lot of humanity. Let them strive as they may, no strength and no artifice will ever succeed in banishing from human life the ills and troubles which beset it, unquote. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it, it's uh, the ills and troubles that beset human life are the result of original sin. Uh, first of all, uh, as you quoted Genesis before, the earth was enlisted to help in the punishment of man. Uh, and so as soon as he's born, he's got trouble. He's got, uh, he's got to till that soil, which... Did you ever notice that weeds come up very nicely and, and oh, yes. stay there, and uh, whereas the flowers uh, you know, don't do so well and are overcome by the weeds? Why can't it be the opposite? You know, why can't we have the flowers that are more hardy than the weeds and, and vice versa? But no, they are there uh, uh, because the earth was enlisted in the punishment of man. And the natural disasters that take place are part of the general punishment of man. We should not think from that that, you know, because a city has an earthquake that therefore all of those people are the most evil people of the world. Not at all. Or that a tornado rips through a town, that those are all evil people that were particularly punished by God. No, the, the however, the, the general... Uh, difficulty in living upon this earth is something intended by God for the general 
punishment of human beings. We have a hard time with it. I mean, uh, as I often point out in sermons, that you know there are people who get up in the morning, especially in this country, who are fine, and by the end of the day, they are dead because of a tornado. Yes. Because the weather changed. And they did not expect to be dead by the end of the day. Uh, but they had the misfortune of being in their house and did not pay attention uh, to the weather report and so forth. Uh, that That is just part of uh, human life uh, as a result of original sin. And also, what is far worse than that, man drags into his daily life the effects of original sin, such as selfishness and pride, uh, that, that is what caused all of the troubles that led to uh, liberalism, uh, liberal capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, and its counterpart, socialism, is pride and envy. Uh, that that uh, that, uh, that that's part of original sin. You are never going to wipe out the effects of original sin. You can control them by virtue, but they will always be there, uh, ready to take over if you uh, if you do not constantly repress them by mortification. And that's where the church comes in, is that it is, it is preaching virtue. It, it is, and it is giving you the means of virtue by the holy sacraments, by its general preaching, and by mortification, the call to mortification. Things like this encyclical, uh, explaining to people what they should and should not do. But the socialists would like to see a world without God, without the church, and uh, a world that he can perfect by the writings of Engels and Marx, essentially, you know, wonderful prophets of the human race. <laughs> have you got any? Have you got any quotations from from that paragraph you'd like to re- read out, or should we move on to the next? Uh, well, I'm looking in paragraph 19, and maybe I'm uh, jumping. The, the uh, well, that's fine. Paragraph 18. In like manner, the other pains and hardships of life will have no end or cessation on earth uh, because the consequences of sin are bitter and hard to bear. That's paragraph 18, what we just said. Yeah. Uh, and he develops that in that. And then paragraph 19, he gets into the fact that there should be harmony between the entrepreneur and the worker, not disagreement and not strife and not opposition. And again, he comes up with a a magnificent quotation. Each, meaning the entrepreneur and the worker, needs the other. Capital cannot do without labor, nor labor without capital. Very important quotation. Mutual agreement, he says, results in the beauty of good order, while perpetual conflict necessarily produces confusion and savage barbarity. Absolutely true, and we've seen that uh, lived out in the 20th century. Uh, And in our own century, yes, very much. In the next paragraph, in paragraph 20, he goes on to talk about these mutual duties. And it's it's mainly the employer's responsibilities towards his employee. Most of it is, yes. He gives uh, some uh, of the other, employee to employer, but mostly it's employer to employee. It reads like a moral theology book. (laughs) He he, he he spells it all out. Essentially, he tells the employee to not be uh, opposed uh, to his employer, 
uh, to perform his work well and to agree to a, a price and, and not to complain about it, never to injure the property nor outrage the person of an employer, never to resort to violence or engage in riot or disorder. See, all these things are condemned. So uh, this condemns most of the activities of labor unions. <laughs> he does not <laughs> condemn labor unions in themselves or the idea of associations of workers. The Catholic Church actually promoted that, uh, particularly in Germany under uh, Bishop Kettler of Mainz. Uh, the, the, there were Catholic organizations of workers uh, s- somewhat replacing the guilds. Uh, in the middle 19th century, but they gave way to the labor unions eventually. Uh, but labor unions often use these uh, tactics that Leo XIII condemns here. Uh, but he then he turns to the employer and says, uh, uh, he says, uh, don't look upon their work people as their bondsmen, uh, but to respect in every man his dignity as a person ennobled by Christian character. Notice that, that he... It's not merely dignity as a person, but ennobled by Christian character. He he says, working for gain is creditable, not shameful to a man. So it's not bad to be a worker, a factory worker, a man who sweeps the floor. Uh, It enables him to earn an honorable livelihood, but to misuse men as though they were things in the pursuit of gain, or to value them solely for their physical powers, that is truly shameful and inhuman. So he, he really gives it to these cold entrepreneurs. And there were plenty of them at the time. Uh, I remember somebody telling me that out in Butte, a place called Butte, Montana, in the western part of the United States, there, there's a tremendous copper mine. I think it's shut down now, but everybody worked in the copper mine. And it was owned by one person. This was in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And if you so much as asked for a day off to go to your mother's funeral, you would be fired. They just considered you to be dirt, and they had absolutely no mercy. If you were sick, you'd get fired. If you didn't show up for work, you'd get fired. Because you, you were just a, a just like a part in the machine. If you, if you didn't do your work, you'd thrown out, you were thrown out. He is blasting people like that in that sentence. <laughs> and they deserve to be blasted. That was the very problem, and that's that was the fuel of socialism and the fuel of all of the socialistic and um, violent means that labor unions were using at the time. Um, yes, he goes on and on uh, about the, what, the duties of the employer and uh, how uh, you know, the, the workers should not be in any way abused. You know, very edifying and uh, uh, becoming to the church that it is always looking toward the the lower class in the sense of not that it 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 detests the upper classes or in any way neglects them, but uh, like our Lord was compassionate to people who were miserable, uh, so the church is compassionate to the miserable and takes up their cause. And this answers Bergoglio. You would think from Bergoglio that the Catholic Church never had any concern for the poor or the miserable. You would think yes. that he he was the first person that ever came along that had any care. What is true is that he's the that he would like to see a socialist care of the poor 
and a socialist rise of the poor, and and not a a Christian care for the poor, a Catholic, you know, based on Catholic principles. Uh, and we'll see Leo the Thirteenth even talks about that a little bit later too, as if the Catholic Church were never concerned about the poor. <laughs> it's just not true. The Catholic Church before the 19th century operated all of the alleviation of the poor. It was on a it's Catholic Church in, in Europe, and I don't know about England, but uh, certainly in pre-Reformation England, that operated the alleviation of the poor. And there were plenty of poor, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, uh, plenty of poor people, and especially in cities and all, people who were poor even through their own fault. But it was a beautiful system because the 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 church, being local, could know the difference between somebody who was just a a lazy bones, or or someone who really had a problem, like a, a widow who was uh, striving to raise her family or something, and and it didn't come under the you know this enormous state bureaucracy that is centered in some capital far away, and and which is the way it is in this country now. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure it's the same in England, you know. That, uh, yeah. And and then in the 19th century in England, again, particularly, you had the rise of the poorhouses, which were miserable places, but yes. under under the tutelage of the state. Yes, uh, in in late, uh, well, around this time, late, late, late 19th century, well, the whole of the 19th century, really. Yes, the church did do a lot of uh, alleviation of the poor in England, um, particularly at that time, uh, obviously, Ireland was also was also joined to the United Kingdom. Um, and, you know, Irish Irish girls who'd made a mistake and whose family had, uh, had, had cast her out, a, l- a lot of them would um, come across the water and travel to London. And there was a convent near Paddington that was well known. The nuns would take these girls in and look after them. The church used to do a lot of it. And, of, and of course, you know, as the church recedes, the state is more than happy to take its place. So when the church would provide schools and hospitals and, and almshouses and hospices, all of those traditional roles that the church used to fill at, a, at actually a fraction of the cost that what they're filled at now, if the church and the state were in a normal condition, the church would be doing all of those things, or most of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, I would certainly rather, you know, have a, a religious taking care of me than some state employee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd rather deal with a, a priest, a brother, or a nun than a state employee. I mean, nothing against state employees. It's just that their care, the care given by someone who is motivated by supernatural charity, is always going to be better than the care given by somebody that is motivated either by uh, money, the job, or even by social consciousness, let's say. It's just going to be better. <laughs> and it was better. <laughs> yes, it because was. Because charity wants for the person you're taking care of the same good that you will for yourself. That's the virtue of charity. So that goes a long way. So I'm going to move on now to paragraph 21, where he's talking about labor and merit and the, the right use of goods. And the uh, quote that I picked out, you, you may have another one, my Lord, but the one that I spotted was, God has given us this world as a place of exile and not as our abiding place. As for riches and the other things which men call good and desirable, 
whether we have them in abundance or are lacking in them, so far as eternal happiness is concerned, it makes no difference. The only important thing is to use them right. Yes, uh, that, that's the general theological principle, is that every material or every created thing, every created thing must be used in the way that God wants us to use them. Uh, every created thing must be loved in the way that God wants us to love them and to the extent that God wants us to love them. That's the general principle. So no created thing is ever sought for itself. It has a use, and we are obliged to use it accordingly, that is, in conformity with the use that God intends for it. And God might intend a different use for the same thing in the hands of different people. And he goes on about, um, he quotes in paragraph 22, uh, the obligation to give what is above and beyond your, the needs of your state in life. So that's why God makes the rich, in order that they have a lot, and in order that they give away a lot. And sure, they're going to live as rich people in, in a, a world of greater luxury than a person who just tills the soil. Uh, certainly, but that pertains to their state. And it is good that they have that leisure and that luxury. We would not have Mozart or Haydn or Handel or any of the other great artists that pack planes from the United States to Europe <laughs> to see and hear, unless there had been an aristocracy that had plenty of money and plenty of leisure in order to patronize those things. If left to the, 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 the worker, uh, you know, the, the lowly worker, he wouldn't have the taste or intelligence to cultivate those things, first of all, and he wouldn't have the money to patronize them. But the, the glory and beauty of Europe, which is breathtaking, comes from the aristocracy. And you know, people, you know, of course, detest the aristocracy. But they, they are the ones that, uh, whose, whose homes we look at and you know, the, the artwork. And the, it all came from them. Yes. And, and they, they do contribute a great deal to society. They don't contribute trucks and cars and things like that. But they contribute much more important things, uh, and that is things that last forever, things that pertain to, to beauty and, and to the intellect. And, uh, you know, you could not possibly compare any culture on the whole planet to the culture of Europe, and particularly Catholic Europe, uh, which was uh, the result of, of course, the Catholic faith, uh, the elevation of man's intellect, and also the result of a society in which there was a rich aristocracy. But the aristocracy needs to use their money well and their excess well, and they should give to the poor, they should give to the church. And many of the churches that we see in Europe were put up by the aristocracy. Uh, if you take the train into Venice, when you come out of the train station in Venice, there is a church across the street, uh, San Simeone Piccolo, which was erected by a single family, in thanksgiving to God for the fact that their son returned unharmed from a war. I mean, that, that's, and that, that is a, a testimony, of course, to, to piety. It still stands. And 
it is a testimony to their generosity that that they were not attached to their goods but gave them away for uh you know it's a magnificent church it's not a big church but it's a very nice church uh, that's a, you know one family, or the Borgia Chapel, for example, in Santa Maria Maggiore, which is perhaps one of the most, certainly the most beautiful chapel in all Rome. That that's uh, again the effect of an inequality, an aristocracy, uh, uh, and it's an uh, an example of rich people doing something intelligent and correct with their money. Uh, and also giving to the poor is is also part of and very much part of what the rich people should do, because they 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 should assign themselves a, a state of life that is in accordance with reason. You know, they should not be living you know in, in such fabulous luxury that that they're spending all of their money on on their luxuries. They should yes, they should live well and and uh, enjoy the the higher things of life which gives them the taste for all of these things that we enjoy. Uh, but uh, they, they must be sensitive to the needs of the poor. They must use what God gives them according as God wills that they use it. On a, a similar point, I mean, I know you've been to London, my Lord, and um, I know you've been to some of, the, some of the museums, but this may surprise American listeners, but all of the museums and the art galleries in London, at least the public ones, are free. They are free for anybody to look around. And that was as a result of King George and Queen Victoria. They decided that all the art galleries and all of the museums with all of these treasures in should be free so that the people from all classes could go in and appreciate the things that there are to see there. And I know that you've been to visit the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square and you, know, you said it's a, it's a fabulous collection. It's, it's, it's outstanding. But that, that wouldn't have been free if it hadn't have been four very wealthy patrons, in this case, the monarch, saying, yes. well, actually, no, this should be free in, in, in perpetuity. Yes, yes. The, the much maligned aristocracy really, as I said, it, it keeps the airlines in business. The, the uh, I mean, Americans go over and 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 soak up Europe far more than the Europeans do themselves. The uh, you know we we know where everything is. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> because we're starved over here. You see, we have a, a culture that was essentially republican and and we might say plebeian, almost not not really plebeian, but. A, a, a culture of the common man and, and Republican and Protestant. Well, you you mix all of those things together, and you don't get much out of it, as from the point of view of art or ar- architecture. The only kind of decent architecture that in this country was uh, imitation of the Georgian architecture in England. You know, there are some nice buildings like that. Uh, one of them, Independence Hall. Not to bring up a sore subject, but the the uh, that was a, a fine example of, of Georgian architecture, and the old Philadelphia has uh, some beautiful uh, Georgian architecture in it. But it really, uh, the, the, you know, uh, lacking the Catholic faith, there was a lack of interest in higher things, and there was a, a very strong pursuit of money and what money could buy in this country uh, from the beginning, and that's why it has a sterility about it. Moving on, because I, I don't want to make any comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
to, to finish up that paragraph, um, I'd just like to quote, this This is uh, simply Leo the 13th summarizing everything we've just said. He says, whoever has received from the divine bounty a large share of temporal blessings, whether they be external and material or gifts of the mind, has received them for the purpose of using them for the perfecting of his own nature and at the same time that he may employ them as the steward of God's providence for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. The the strong are made to protect the weak. You never get anything from God without some command to use it properly. We would like to remind you that you are listening to Popes Against the Modern Errors, Rerum Navarum Part 1, on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. And today we've been discussing Leo XIII's great encyclical, Rerum Novarum, on the use of capital and labour. We want to remind you that this Popes Against the Modern Errors show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. Moving on to paragraph 24, this is when Pope Leo XIII addresses the real value of, of life, and, and that's the moral life. And in, in paragraph 24 and 25, he talks about the idea that virtue and the moral life are key, and that Christian duties and rights create harmony. Obviously, the cor- corollary of which is that the, the opposite is true. Um, and he and he goes on in paragraph 26 to talk about the role of the church. Could you could you address a few points in these paragraphs? Yeah. So the church is empowered by God to teach the human race in, in the name of God and and with the power of God and with the infallibility of God. And the church uses bishops and priests to do that. The, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and the a beautiful quote in this paragraph 26, they alone, referring to the, the uh, priests of the Church, can reach the innermost heart and conscience and bring men to act from a motive of duty, to control their passions and appetites, to love God and their fellow men with a love that is outstanding and of the highest degree, and to break down courageously every barrier which blocks the way to virtue. Which is really the key. Uh, you know, the socialist cannot get down into the heart of man, but the priest can. He does it every Sunday, <laughs> and <laughs> and he uh, he addresses the consciences of men. There is the confessional, that is, that if you violate the law of God, you must come to God uh, in the holy sacrament of penance and declare your sin. Uh, and and uh, promised never to to commit the sin again. That reaches way way down, keeps men on the straight and narrow. And then there are the sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, which strengthens people against their their passions and which pacifies man inside, uh, so that that he listens to the gospel and all of the dictates of the Holy Gospel, that he, that he have a heart 
softened with to uh, with regard to material things that he's he's not some sort of animal that is you know searching through the jungle for whatever he can devour but that he that that virtue and the the state of his soul are the most important things his eternal salvation these are the important things and that material things you know yes they have their use but they're not so important that we have to get all excited about them uh <laughs> it, it it places them in, in a you know uh, I think that's why, it's one of the reasons why the hum, human race did not change from, say, 1800 B.C. to 1800 A.D. in its inventions. There were certainly intelligent people. There were certainly hardworking people. They were not any less intelligent than the people that, that lived in the 19th century. But I think that the the attention of the human race changed violently almost. Uh, we might say, as a result of the Renaissance and the Reformation, uh, and that we, we saw this turn of humanity for, away from God and toward the material created world. Therefore, the the contraction became more important than the theology. See, that, that uh, having something that would, would do something for you, some, some gizmo, as, I don't know if you say that in England, <laughs> yes. uh, something that, that would... Uh, attract uh, our attention and, and make life a little easier for us became the object of men's minds. I mean, we see that in, say, in Sir Isaac Newton and others, just staring at the world. There's nothing wrong with science. There's nothing wrong with figuring out physical processes and all. But what is wrong is the attention that we give to it. And human beings did not pay too much attention to it. They paid a great deal of attention to God and to religion, philosophy, art, which you know, flows directly from those things. Uh, they they did not give so much attention, except as the Renaissance and the spirit of the Renaissance matured in the 19th century. You see the the attention of great minds upon you know the things of science and and the, the things of money making. I mean the the frenzy of the stock market and the just uh, money making money 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 uh, that that is something that didn't exist before the 19th century. So you see a decline of humanity in that sense that humanity is totally uncultured now. I mean anything he's got he he digs up. I mean if you <laughs> I mean, the concert hall is full of people like Mozart and Beethoven and, and Handel. Uh, you know, it's not the... the, the it's usually, if, if there's a modern composer, it's because the government demands it or it's some sort of subsidy in order to promote modern music or something. But at least that's true in this country. But what what really attracts people are is the old culture. This society we live in is incapable of producing that culture because it's addicted to money and what money will buy. So it just uh, I think that's uh, what he's saying here is that uh, virtue is going to perfect man, and it is the church that is going to give virtue because it has all of the means to do it. And in paragraph 27, he goes on to talk about the fact that the civil society must go back to Catholic principles that it was renovated in every part by Christian institutions. And the 
degeneracy that we see now can't be can't be solved in any other way. No no amount of no amount of socialism, no amount of Marxism, no amount of capitalism come to that or distributism will address the the key problem, which is the fact that the state is not aligned along Catholic principles. Yes, that's absolutely true. One of the biggest revolutions, the biggest revolution that ever took place, but it was a very quiet one and a slow one, was the Christianization of society in the Roman Empire, where the the gospel completely transformed the way people looked at each other and saw each other. Uh, the Roman Empire was 20% free and 80% slave. It was a brutal society. Uh, all it knew was might and power and, and cruelty as virtues. And if you were a slave, you, you were practically zero. And, and, and you know, you, you were, uh, the gods did not smile on you. That was your lot in life. You were going to have a short life and we will work you to death. Um, that, that was the attitude. You were just nothing. Uh, and uh, the aristocracy was humanity, essentially. That changed completely <laughs> with the influx of Catholicism, because the the slave was was as much a child of God as the aristocrat, and the aristocrat was in much was as much in need of the Holy Eucharist as the slave was, and everyone at the communion rail was quite equal <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> the king in the Middle Ages kneeling next to the serf. And as the priest holds the Holy Eucharist in front of them, they're both exactly equal in their need uh, for for the Savior. They're, they're, no matter what their state in life, their power, their... their and that actually caused a, a revolution, a society, a social revolution, but a very quiet one, and uh, nothing like what we're used to in recent history, but... A total um, change. Father Cahill is very good on that whole point in his book. Uh, I forget the name of his book, but he wrote it. It was an Irish Jesuit. And uh, of the change that came about as a result of the Christianization of the Roman Empire. And that's what prevailed during the Middle Ages, was that uh, the mystical body, the notion of the mystical body, and a true equality in that sense, you know, where we are equal in our dependence upon God, and, and equal in the fact that we all have a, the same dependence on the Redeemer for our eternal salvation. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's something like when the Titanic is sinking, everyone has the same dependence on that lifeboat, whether they, they're <laughs> the richest people on the boat or the poorest uh, of the steering, the steerage class, they, they, they all get in the same boat. Uh, yeah. And that that impressed people and really did change society. Uh, and is, there was a return to the paganism of old and the cruelty of old as a result of the Renaissance and the Reformation. And we are seeing the, the effect of that now, and it's extreme effect right now. Polio then goes on to talk about the church's work amongst the poor and charity, for the benefit of the listeners who may be reading through this, uh, going through paragraphs 29 through to 31. And in these three paragraphs, he talks particularly about the church's work amongst the poor, which is clearly something the church never did before, you know, until after Vatican II. And That's then he right. talks 
the necessity of charity and the church and state working together, which again, some people might find a bit shocking, but it is gen- generally accepted that that's a good thing uh, in, <laughs> in, in a Catholic mm. society. Um, although we've Absolutely. been more or less trained to believe that that's a bad thing now. And, People who live in Western liberal democracies cannot possibly understand that actually the church and state should work together. That's that's the normal way that things should be. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that is a heresy, actually, that has embraced, uh, that human beings have embraced, as a result, again, of the French Revolution, which uh, is the, the source of all of our problems. Uh, the, the, uh, all of our pro- social and political Problems, and we might even say economic, but uh, although, uh, but social and political theory comes out of that awful revolution. But a pre-intonation of that awful revolution was the American Revolution. Uh, it was not quite as as uh, radical, we might say, but it had all of the elements of the French Revolution in it. Uh, and I know a lot of Americans don't like to hear that, but it is nonetheless true. Uh, and uh, uh, it was the first society that was created without God, and, and uh, you know, the Constitution makes no mention of God. Uh, that was the first in the history of the world, a society created without any reference to religion. So that has become uh, the um, mainstay of, of the world. As a matter of fact, the, the Europeans during the 19th century looked to the United States for inspiration Look how wonderful things are in the United States, a free church in a, in a, in a free state, and uh, we should separate church and state in the European countries uh, because it's just every, uh, life is so wonderful over there. Now, that was, <laughs> it was especially said on the continent. And uh, life is not so wonderful because, well, this week, uh, you know, with the Supreme Court uh, judgment, uh, you cannot cite the law of God against what is unnatural. See, so, as I pointed out in my recent newsletter, it, once you bless the unnatural as something that is legal and right and, and the, the object of, of right and uh, civil right, well, uh, as I said, go to Wikipedia and look at, under the list of paraphilias and you'll, have a hun- you'll find 102 paraphilias that is, attractions to various things that are so bizarre and unmentionable here, but uh, which nevertheless would, according to all the logic, be the object of civil right and, and, and uh, legal right. So if you separate church from state and state from church, you set to, it's, the ship of state goes off without rudder and without sails. <laughs> And you have people deciding social or, or moral issues, let's be on social, moral issues, who know nothing about morality, who have absolutely no compass at all. I mean, it's just a, a ship riding with the waves and being tossed by currents. And it, it means the, the ultimate destruction of society. It'll take decades and maybe even more than a century. But any society that is operating on that principle will eventually crash and sink just as a ship will if it has no rudder, has no sails, and has no compass. Uh, so, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that separation of church and state is just a, is just a meme that 
Protestants used to destroy the, ch- the influence of the church anyway, because in England, the state and the church is very clearly united. The head of state is also the head of the church. And you don't hear any anybody but the most hardcore and ardent atheists complain about that. No, but uh, separation of church and state actually was not, not called for by Protestants, but by deists and Enlightenment philosophers. Uh, they, believe it or not, the Protestants in this country were appalled by separation of church and state in the Constitution and accused Jefferson of being an atheist for asking for it. He said that there should be a wall of separation between the church and the state. That's Jefferson. And mm-hmm. the Protestants, uh, the Anglicans and other Protestants, uh, accused them of being an atheist for advocating such a thing. So it really comes from that 18th century deism, and there was plenty of that in England, and uh, plenty of that in France and Holland and every place else, but it comes from that, the idea of a secular society, a secularistic society, a, a lay society that, that has no regard for God or religion at all. E- even England, where there is a technical uh, union of church and state, the, the deism has been so triumphant in that uh, in that country that that you know the, the influence of the church uh, is virtually nil. Uh, yes, but, um, yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Episcopalians in this country voted overwhelmingly, as something like a hundred and something to twenty nine, in their Congress or whatever they have out in Salt Lake City. They, uh, in favor of doing same-sex marriages in their churches. Now, they are the they are in the Anglican Communion, the Episcopalians, the mainstream Episcopalians. Uh, so they're going to marry man and man and woman and woman in their churches. Uh, uh, this is the effect of deism, essentially, that, that affected all religions except the Catholic religion uh, and except certain Protestant reactions to it. But uh, it is the effect of, of the 18th century thinking, the separation of church and state, which, which was given flesh in the French Revolution. And these are the people that say that you should pick up your Bible, yet they can't open up their own Bibles and figure out that those unnatural <laughs> vices are wrong. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's so clearly contrary to sacred scripture. If your religion is based on scripture alone, if the Bible is your book, now, come on, St. <laughs> <Saint> Paul <laughs> is so explicit about it. Uh, he excoriates the, the Corinthians over it, the Romans, and there was plenty of it in both Corinth and Rome, excoriates yeah. them. And the Old Testament is full of, of uh, it says it's an abomination that man should lie with man and so forth. Yeah, it's so explicit. It means that they are abandoning their very, their very basic beliefs, and and that it has become essentially a deistic religion. And that's what it is mostly in this country. It's uh, as Father Chicada says: great music and no confession. <laughs> that's the Episcopalian Church in this country. They usually have magnificent English-style churches, beautiful churches, yeah. and they wear vestments, and everything is beautiful. Yeah, it's a great yep. place to have your daughter married, you know. And and uh, the uh, the minister is very nice and <laughs> will never <laughs> preach anything to you that will disturb you in any way. 
and and uh, we'll happily come over to dinner if you invite him. It, it's it's that sort of religion, and uh, so uh, I, I I'm guessing that it's a little similar in your country too but oh uh, absolutely yes definitely yeah the, yeah, the, the local vicar is a, a lovely uh, a lovely man or, or lady as the case may be now and um yeah you'll never hear anything you'll never hear anything bad and and actually i must admit they the anglicans they do sing well i, I don't know if you hear it in <laughs> i don't know if you hear it in in the states but every christmas i'm sure you must do every every christmas oh, yes. I, I do listen to king's college uh, king's college uh, at cambridge oh, wonderful oh, the carol, yes, the carol service is fantastic <laughs> yes you can't beat the british for choral music i mean that's well known England takes it in in choruses and choral music, and no no other nationality even comes close to them. So yes, so we are all addicted to English Christmas music over here too. <laughs> <laughs> now they do the best job. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> so, so uh, having having talked about all that immor- having talked about that immorality the, before, not the not the music, but the stuff we were talking about before. Um, yes. It, it just moves us on nicely to talking about the purpose of the state. Um, and the Pope clearly states that there are really six areas in which the state should should take centre stage. And that, that is to, first of all, for a moral rule, to make sure that morals are upheld, a well-regulated family life, respect for religion and justice, meaning the true religion, moderation and fair imposing of public taxes, progress of arts and trade and the abundant yield of the land through everything which makes citizens better and happier. Yes, another magnificent quote. And in this, all modern governments fall flat on their faces on all six counts. (laughs) Yes, everything. There's nothing nothing there that you can say they do well. The opposite. They pervert moral life. They they pervert the family. They have no respect for religion or justice. The ta- the taxes are are horrendous and and you know a terrible burden, uh, worse than the the burden of the the aristocrat upon the serf in the Middle Ages. Progress of art and trade uh, usually you know enacting laws that that in some way prohibit or or inhibit uh, all of those things. And uh, abundant yield of the land uh, through everything, in fact. Uh, so, usually through socialistic programs, uh, they, they uh, in some way or the other, mess up both trade and agriculture. Uh, you know, at least I would say that for this country. Yeah, I'd, I'd say exactly the same for uh, exactly <laughs> the same for us. You, you, I'm sure you're not familiar with the wonders of the European Common Agricultural Policy that pays farmers to not farm. But that's something that we have over here, which is which is marvelous. We, we all love it. Oh, that was cooked up by uh, Roosevelt in this country. Oh, really? Paying, yes. Well, paying farmers not to farm. Yes. Yeah, those those lovely bureaucrat chaps in Brussels. They uh, they make sure that we do that as well. It's brilliant. It's a really good yeah. system. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm being <laughs> being sarcastic, of course. Moving on again, and uh, paragraph thirty-three now. Uh, he talks about the idea of justice and that all are equal in rights regarding the state. Now, this is pretty topical for a lot of people because 
you mentioned Wall Street and Wall Street and the city of London and really any other any other centre of banking around the world. You've got a lot of enormous banks that, when they commit huge amounts of uh, fraud and make enormous losses, they then expect to be bailed out. And when when it turns out that these people have been committing crime, the, the Attorney General comes out and says about, actually, it was a British bank, it was HSBC. I, I mm-hmm. follow this financial news. He, he, I think it was Eric Holder. He turned around and said, we can't prosecute these people because they, the words used was they present a systemic risk to the financial system. Um, but basically what it means is that they're too big to jail. They're too big to fail, so we have to bail them out. And then they're too big to jail, so we, we can't prosecute them. And mm-hmm. in the, the state we have now, there is, we talk, we talk about the state should uphold a moral rule. It seemed, and you said that this state does not uphold a moral rule. In fact, it encourages quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm purely talking in terms of finance and economics, but this idea that there is, that there is should be justice for all equally in the rights regarding the state has seems to have fallen apart. Oh, absolutely, yes. As I said, there is an aristocracy, and they have their own laws. <laughs> and the aristocracy is an aristocracy of money, and I think that's probably true of Europe, as much true of Europe as it is here. Uh, we saw that in 2008, where uh, certain uh, large entities in New York were too big to go under, and uh, then there was government motors. I'm referring to General Motors. Uh, that that was uh, that's what they called it. Even Obama referred to it as that. Uh, that had to be bailed out because they were too big to go under. And um, yes, it, it's uh, it's socialism. It's it's uh, you know the 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 uh, the blundering or downright. Um, dishonesty uh, of the banks or of large corporations is ignored. The money that is is garnered by hardworking people is spent on on in order to make up for the, for their problems. Uh, uh, yes, the, the uh, yes equal justice under law is uh, everyone you know must conform to the law and should be uh, punished accordingly, uh, uh, that, that is uh, certainly a, a tenet of, of good government. It doesn't exclude what we call privilege, uh, that which means a private law. In other words, you must conform to the law that is made for you. So, uh, for example, the aristocracy had certain privileges. There's nothing contrary to the state in regard to that. But uh, nevertheless, everyone must conform to the law if the law does not prosecute, if the law does not uh, pursue equally those who violate uh, its tenets, uh, you, you have the beginning of chaos and, and also the beginning of revolution. Uh, the, 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 uh, what makes people rise up and revolt is, is a cynicism and a, a, a failure to believe in their government uh, as something that is seeing to their welfare. So you know you're you're really playing with fire. Uh, that that's that's what he says. Society, no matter what changes he says in thirty four, may occur in forms of government. There will ever be differences and equalities in of condition in the state. Society cannot exist or be conceived of without them. And then there he's saying you know, there's a certain inequality among uh, members of the of the state, but. 
the law is the law, and uh, rule of law, that, that is what makes the strength of a nation. And, and when that breaks down, you're, you're really uh, drilling at the foundations of the whole thing. I think we're going to have to cut it off there for this episode. But for now, may I thank you, my Lord, for being my guest today. Oh, and cool. may I again wish you good health and continued success in the work you do at the seminary in Florida and your apostolic work around the world. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye. If you have any questions for His Lordship or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at moderners at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments. We would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you have found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.